I have, in sort of a fit of pique, said, well, ML is just a fancy name for statistics and caught a lot of heat for that. And yes, I know the difference between the different algorithms and supervised versus unsupervised. But at the end of the day, a lot of folks end up realizing what works best, and that's the trick. It doesn't matter which tool you use. No one gets bonus points for using a cooler algorithm. If it moves, measure it. And if it doesn't move, measure it in case it moves. Hi, I'm Guy Pajarni, CEO and co-founder of Sneak. And you're listening to The Secure Developer, a podcast about security for developers, covering security tools and practices you can and should adopt into your development workflow. The Secure Developer is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybeats.com. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you would like to suggest a topic for us to discuss, find us on Twitter at The Secure Dev. Hello, everybody. Thanks for tuning back in. Today, we have uh, an awesome guest with us that I've long uh, wanted to sort of bring on the show, Ali Miller. Thanks for joining us, Ali. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Uh, so Ali, you know, you've got a sort of a long and interesting in history uh, in the world of security. Can I kind of ask you to just give us give us some context? How did you get into security? What's the short story of your life here in the security world? Absolutely. I think I have tried a few times to figure out where I got bitten by the initial bug. And every time I think about it, I start going back further and further <laughs> into childhood where that sort of paranoia or interest in protecting things came from. But I largely got interested in it in college. I was studying finance and economics, and I was really interested in e-commerce, which was getting just getting started to grow. And so how technology was going to be applied to the needs of business became interesting to me. And for some reason, I mean, no one around me <laughs> knows where it came from, but something about, well, that's going to go wrong or that's going to get exploited. So I became really interested in the security implications, the economic implications of electronic money and of commerce and transactions and payments. And I was very interested in that in college. There was nothing really to research, and this, these were in the days of e-cash. This was long before uh, cryptocurrency became a thing. So that's where my interest kind of gelled. But then I didn't really know how to do that for a living. It was more of a, an academic or prurient interest than a particular uh, idea of what I could do for work. So I, I ended up just going into IT. I used the information systems decision science part of my degree and kind of left the business economics and criminology aspects of what I studied to the side for a little while. But within six months... I got a reputation as the girl who asks all the weird questions about cryptography <laughs> and security. And so when the company that I worked for decided or realized rather that they needed to have a more specific security strategy and they, they were going to build a security department, I became the first hire into that department and was able to help build that practice from the ground in partnership with the CISO and a couple of other folks. And then I kind of took the show on the road, decided to see what other opportunities I might be able to find. And 
And interestingly enough, I went, I ended up at Visa, which was one of the places that I had kind of thought was interesting from the outside and, and from a from an academic point of view, because that's where payments were happening. And they looked at my resume and you very kindly described it as interesting and, and lengthy. But when they saw it, they just thought it was weird. And so they wanted to chat with me and I ended up, that's how I moved out to the Silicon Valley, to <laughs> not to work for a Silicon Valley startup, or maybe perhaps to work for one of the original Silicon Valley startups, which was Visa, and then uh, ended up going to other sort of dot-com. Yeah, environments. Yeah. So you went on from there. So this sort of got you into this this sort of risk category, right? So what is I guess we'll kind of continue a little bit along this journey, but you know, what what was sort of captured in those in those days in in risk? Like, you know, what type of activity falls under that mantle? Right. My career has been kind of like a jungle gym swinging from one <laughs> side to the other. So I went to Visa to work on technology risk, which was they were interested in using new technologies and making payments work. Things like making payments work online, chip cards, mobile technologies. And my job was to help them figure out how to employ the new technologies safely. But I very quickly became interested, not just in what the technology implications were, but how the design of the financial products themselves created or resisted risk or exploitation. And so I moved from technology risk to product risk. Um, well, I don't know if you noticed, but compared to, say, startups, Visa is a little bit slow. So I actually got through uh, and risk assessed, if you will, all of their new and emerging products at some point and realized I didn't have anything new to work on. And perhaps I actually wanted to go where there was a lot of risk being dealt with directly. And that's what led me to make the jump over to PayPal. So at PayPal, the game of risk was very different. It wasn't about, you know, Allison's going to go in and pick apart this design of this product and figure out where all the weak spots are. It was all math and statistical modeling, anti-fraud technologies as played by large banks They've been developing those sort of modeling techniques and capabilities for years and years. So it was actually quite structured and required that I learn on the job fairly quickly how to use things like SAS, which was an SPSS and R and, and those types of things. So that was a that was a very, very different approach to what I had initially thought about related to understanding how risk works, which was from that sort of technical point of view where you're deconstructing a design and figuring out where there are flaws in the design to go from that all the way over to just the sort of pure math approach. Uh, but I did that at PayPal for a little while and really enjoyed what I learned and learned a lot. And I, I worked in, in that sort of anti-fraud risk function for many years at PayPal and then went back to the technology, which is, you know, I, I was helping design the technology, design how mobile authentication mechanisms were going to be incorporated into the, the login flow, for example, you know, using 2FA and getting all of these different factors of authentication and adding in the type of identity validation that we needed to do for new account signups and other technology that we were bringing to bear to protect the accounts or to reduce the fraud risk 
that sort of approach to technology. I was working a lot more with engineers. I was working as a product manager in some contexts. I was also still doing a lot of analysis and working with the modeling team, but I shifted then away from the math and back more squarely into the technology. And since that experience, using data has infused or informed almost every job that I've had since then. And some Form or another, I've worked a lot on detection technologies, and the underlying math of it is often similar. And then I have continued working with engineers in every every role that I've had subsequently, because the risks that I've been dealing with, battling, if you will, the controls we embed them sort of in the fabric of whatever the platform is. So at PayPal. It was fairly straightforward. Uh, you were either trying to prevent a fraudulent transaction or you're trying to prevent someone from like logging into someone else's account. Those were the primary risks that I was looking at. But every platform has their sort of version of that. Communication platforms deal with spam. Gaming platforms deal with cheating or griefing. And then you know, in, in advertising, you can have bad actors trying to get ads into the system or use other people's accounts to put ads into the system. So account security has also been a common thread. So I guess broad strokes my career, I went from the economics to the technology, to the technology of economics, (laughs) to the economics of technology, back to the technology, and there's still economics in it, plus data. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's kind of a, a combo there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's it's just amazing how everything is interconnected. People, when they look at my resume, they still, their reaction is, wow, you've had a really weird journey. <laughs> but, it, but it all makes sense in retrospect. Well, I think the, the acknowledgement of the kind of the combo of data and engineering and having data-driven decisions is something that actually permeates more and more with kind of the world of machine learning and, and AI. And I think the notion of using data for risk assessment is sort of an early player. It doesn't matter if you call it ML or, or AI, but sort of you know, driving technology actions to, to sort of act on the data. At the end of the day, I think you're quite right. And I, I have in sort of a fit of pique said, well, ML is just a fancy name for statistics and caught a lot of heat for that. And yes, I know the difference between the different algorithms and supervised versus unsupervised. But at the end of the day, a lot of folks end up realizing that what works best. And that's the trick. The trick is you're trying to optimize the performance of this decisioning system and sometimes the ML helps you. Sometimes, you know, a neural neural net or AI might help you. But in a lot of cases, you're just going to end up with a rules engine with a bunch of heuristics. And no matter how wonderful the Bayesian learning network is, sometimes you're just going to end up with a logistic regression model. It's okay, folks. It's okay. Uh, the, the Use the tool that helps you best uh, get to the optimization level that is your kind of your horizon or it push it, push the envelope. It doesn't matter which tool you use. No one gets bonus points for using a cooler algorithm. Yeah, indeed. You just need to like sound impressive. And I think that's pretty much uh, the way it is. You know, that's what the, the term machine learning kicks in. 
you've done a lot of these different risk assessments. Are there like low-hanging fruit? So if you think of somebody building a solution, and granted, this is probably a very broad question, right? But building a solution that has some large volume of transactions. Are there like first early suspects around reducing risk? Like, have you seen some trend of if you only did this, then you sort of have some, you know, initial first hit at eliminating noise or kind of the most blatant abuse or something that is equivalent to like the input validation of sort of web attacks for uh, for, for, for risk reduction or bad transaction reduction? Well, I guess it really does depend on the system. I suppose a few, well, a few rules of thumb or something that I, I would recommend to folks who are starting out, you have a platform, you deal in something, therefore you may have someone figure out how to exploit whatever your version of a transaction is. Instrument the heck out of everything in the sense that it, what the, the way that these decisioning technologies work off of is telemetry. What, what would be considered telemetry. And to give you an idea of what to instrument, because I know that's in my head, I'm looking at this, like these horrifyingly long tables. Like yeah, that's, that's what I'm imagining. I'm imagining when an event happens, I mean, you have a timestamp and you have who attempted it and what, what they were attempting and what the result was, et cetera, et cetera. That's how I think I know not everybody's using, I mean, thank goodness not everybody's using relational databases for everything, but in my mind, it looks like logs, log files, and you want a record of, of what happened so that when you start to build these decisioning technologies, you have data where you can start to process and look for what you then learn are unusual behaviors. In transactional systems, if we're talking about something like payment or even to an extent communications, there's a couple places where risk tends to cluster or bundle, I guess, which is when you have newness, for example, a new account. You don't know much about it. It it could be real. It could be a bot. And so what it does initially or what you let brand new accounts or actors do on your system that, you know, there's an interesting place there. And then when you have accounts or features or processes that you've had for a very long time and suddenly they're doing something new, that's also a place to look for risk. So that is very abstract. Yeah, no, but actually super practical. I think, uh, I feel like you know the, the the first recommendation you gave is very kind of DevOpsy in nature, right? You know, if it moves, measure it. If it doesn't move, measure it in case it moves, right? You know, very uh, <laughs> very uh, kind of uh, oriented at accumulate the data so you can later establish right from wrong. And actually, I find newness to be uh, fairly concrete, not a very abstract, like you know, very uh, clear cut. You know, when a new entity gets created, a new action, an action is done for the first time. That's when you scrutinize. An example that I like to use is. Uh, I worked with Skype fairly early on, pre you know, pre it being owned by Microsoft. It would folks forget it was owned by eBay briefly for a couple of years. So when Skype first started up and was offering voice over IP, what many folks might not have thought about is the fact that VoIP minutes were extremely highly monetizable and very attractive to fraudsters. Fraudsters being folks who are using other folks' credit cards to buy things. And so Skype did something very interesting because to provide voice over IP, 
is not expensive. It's pretty cheap, which is, you know, why, why they were doing it. But it wasn't free, interestingly, because there's telecommunications providers that have to yeah, pay each paid. other for yeah. connecting calls and things like that. So anyway, what Skype did is if you were a new paying customer, meaning you wanted to make calls out of Skype to phones or accept phone calls into you, that was the paid portion of the, of the service. And I think you were allowed to pay in 15 pounds worth of calls for the first 90 days that you were a subscriber. And it was very specific and there was a reason for it which was if you had stolen someone's credit card and you had maxed out your, your 15 pounds, then they expected that they would receive a chargeback from the legitimate cardholders issuer within that 90 days because at least at that time, the average chargeback return time was somewhere around 45 days. Yeah. So they figured they would probably, you know, they would get 80 to 90% of the chargebacks in within that window. So if you were a normal, innocent customer, like most folks are, maybe you wanted more and you would complain, why can't I have 30 pounds? I want 15 pounds. I, I, 15 pounds is not enough for me to make all the phone calls I want to make. They were very annoyed. But the annoyance factor of the good customers was just, it, they, they had to risk that because the attraction of the system to fraudsters was such that they just put in that really strict sort of draconian measure yeah. because new customers, new credit cards to their system, those were the riskiest ones. Yeah. So this is a this is sort of risk, right? And we got into it, and you, you've done all of that dig. You're kind of a, the current leg of your journey is a little bit more in the sort of security engineering side, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yes, that's right. Tell us a little bit, like, is that indeed a transition? You know, how is that a transition? What's this new world, and what made you uh, try it out? Right. So I think yes, I, and a lot of folks still they they still when they think of me they think of they think of fraud. <laughs> That's an interesting distinction. <laughs> it's a yeah. it's not a bad association if you can dismantle it. You know, if you're not the fraudster yourself. <laughs> so I think to sort of put it into context, I want to mention what I had been doing just prior to this new role that I'm in, which is that I had been working as a product manager, I guess, yes, that's how I describe it, doing strategy for some of the engineering teams working on security at Google. And specifically, I'd been, well, I'd been working with a few teams on things I can't necessarily talk about, but I've been doing a lot of work with the safe browsing team. So the safe browsing team what people see, the, the public version of what they see, they go, oh, safe browsing. They're the ones who make Chrome show a red warning page if there's a phishing link or a malware link that I just clicked on. That's the Chrome experience that gets created. But interestingly, all of the major products at Google use the safe browsing, the results of the safe browsing work. In the, and some of them have customer-facing experiences, and some of them just have back-end things that they have done to make their product safer. But Search uses it, Chrome uses it, Android uses it, Ads uses it, Gmail uses it. The big five is sort of I thought of them, and, and most of the other products too. And what, what Safe Browsing does on the back-end to create this list of URLs that are hosting harmful content is... 
they crawl the whole internet (laughs) (laughs) in pieces. Of course, there's no way to sort of snapshot the whole thing and process it overnight. So they crawl, they sample, and then they evaluate what they see. So for a phishing page, maybe they're evaluating a content on a page, but for malware, they actually, they evaluate the behavior of the software. So they have these enormous pipelines set up to actually understand the behavior of the software itself, which means they're downloading it and running running it. And if it moves, measure it. And if it doesn't move, measure it in case it moves. So the thing about that that just blows my mind, man, (laughs) is that all of the behavioral analytics techniques that I learned in a transactional environment like payments, all of those techniques can also be brought to bear to understand or to make evaluations about the behavior of software. Yeah, letting that sink in a little bit. So like all of those can help measure the behavior of software. Software or sort of the humans using that software? So malware classification is a classification event that's being done based on the behaviors of software because you ran it. (laughs) You ran the software and were able to extract out of the resulting behaviors data. So you essentially created a transaction by making the software run or taking some data associated with what else is on the page, you can essentially classify the behavior. I'm doing air quotes for anyone who can't see me. (laughs) Um, You can classify the behavior by what you observe. It just kind of blew my mind, I guess. This idea that content analysis associated with spam, fine. Behavioral analytics on transactions, those are events. Something's in motion already fine. But the idea that it could then go back to the behavior of software and be right back into the security use cases that I'd kind of left a decade ago, it just kind of, it blew my mind. I felt like I was home to a certain extent because it was like one of the things that I was thinking to myself when I was in payments at at a PayPal or any of the other gigs that I've been in where I've been doing anti-fraud, I wish I could bring this expertise back to information security because so much of information security, it feels like it's guessing. It's hard to quantify how much attack you have diverted. You know, it is hard to clarify why to make the investments you're going to make into protections beyond compliance. Compliance is like sort of the backstop bottom line answer for a lot of shops. Yeah. They protect yourself from audits. Yeah. And so I was always hoping I could bring something back, back in related to that quantified understanding of exposure and the performance of what you'd built. And so when I worked with safe browsing, what kind of blew my mind is like the data-driven approach that I'd been using operationalized also could be helpful, right? The quantification, awesome. Yes, I still want to pursue that, but so cool. Like I developed this expertise in this kind of approach in this technology and it wasn't just an anti-abuse, anti-fraud thing, it could also be useful in kind of the core guts of what information security is, which is either the software is broken, it's vulnerable and there are exposures, or the software is bad yeah. and it's coming for you. Mm-hmm. So 
<laughs> in any case, I certainly got a, a good taste of the bad software and the malware software. Man, I never thought I would be working on anything that someone might call antivirus. In my life, I never thought that I would be working on that. But, <laughs> but you know, malware and, and phishing and a lot of the things that, that folks stumble onto on the web, you know, to me that I, I was back in kind of core infosec. And then I still wasn't spending a ton of my time working on what a lot of folks think of when they think of core infosec, which can be boiled down to AppSec, understanding the vulnerabilities in the software and fixing them. But here I was back again. So it was kind of a nice homecoming. And then the role that I'm just moving into is one where I am working as a technologist in an information security context, and we are engineering and building the protections that are being incorporated in to protect the organization and all of our technology. So I'm back into the thick of it. And it's kind of a, it's like a full circle because I started in IT security. Yeah. Way back. I started in IT security, then technology risk, then product risk, then anti-fraud, then anti-spam, anti-abuse, blah, 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 back to security with safe browsing. And now I'm back in IT security in an enterprise context for real. But I brought with me all of the data-driven goodness, all of the platform engineering, building things in and measuring and that sort of learning system approach. And I'm really excited to see how it's going to play out in an enterprise context. In some some sense, this is the, that inverse of the sort of artificial intelligence. I mean, you're using if if software is trying to behave a little bit more human like, right? It's created by humans, so there's probably some attributes there. There's models and statistics and data driven angles that we can use for it, but also we're now using human techniques to analyze software, sort of techniques you would use to analyze kind of you know human misbehavior to analyze software misbehavior. I see what you're saying. I see. What uh, it was like the AI version of, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the... Right. I, I think I know what you're saying. There's a lot of IT security that is humans. It's manual to a certain extent, trying to deal with the implications of the software versus where I was at, where I was using the software to deal with the bad, you know, the, the bad or malicious humans. So you're absolutely right in that I am full speed ahead trying to figure out how to apply computational power to identifying bad behaviors and solving the problems of security. And anything that can be automated, I want the software to do the analytics. And then we reserve the hard stuff for the human compute, the analysis. That definitely is infusing how I'm approaching that for sure. So we're talking a lot about sort of going from the risk analysis to defense to an extent. And you've also been involved in a lot of education, sort of in the IAC organization, kind of help create O'Reilly security. I wanted to touch briefly around, you know, this notion maybe of of defenders or, you know, defending techniques in that security world. Do you want to kind of just sort of share a few thoughts around how do you see kind of the the world's evolution a little bit about sharing these techniques, your involvement with O'Reilly Security or similar conferences? Yeah. So thank you for mentioning that I was I was involved with ISC Squared. I think that's a good organization and it's doing a lot of good work to arm our practitioners, if you will, with 
a baseline set of skills and to try and connect those folks so that we can, a rising tide can lift all boats. The the other piece that you mentioned, O'Reilly, to me, that's also sort of a homecoming because back in college, when I was studying things for which there was no major, no corpus of research, and I was just kind of, you know, hunting around the books with the animal covers were still in the bookstore. And I have, I probably collected most, if not all of the yellow series, which were the ones that were security related. So I have the one with the safe on the cover, the one with the the bobbies, the British police on the cover. I, I thought of them as the Keystone Cops, but I realized that is not what they were. Um, so the, the security series from O'Reilly was one of those things that it was so exciting to read that. And I just, when I thought about technology and reference materials, I would, I would always think of O'Reilly. So they were really sort of foundational to my self-education learning Perl and understanding Unix and all of those things. A lot of that was self-taught. There were no courses in school to learn those things. Those were things that I was just interested in because I wanted to understand how the underlying technology that I was using worked. And I appreciated it so much. So in the past few years, what I I had sort of realized is that O'Reilly was also in the conference space and some of the conferences that I had a lot of friends who were excited about were talking about were were Strata and Velocity. And these were both really interesting events for me because, uh, you know, I was working with data. So what was happening at Strata and the data scientists who were talking there and presenting there, and in fact, a CTO who I worked with, I helped some of the materials that he ended up using on that. And then velocity with high performance computing, which was, you know, instrumenting everything, optimization, scaling everything to the high heavens. To me, it seemed as though this was the perfect time. If O'Reilly was ever going to get interested in doing a security event, this would be sort of the perfect time for them to do that. Because to me, where data and DevOps were dancing, if you will, like security needed some of that. Yeah. And so I was I was very excited to attend or hear about those events. And so when O'Reilly did decide they were going to dip their toe in, I thought, how wonderful. I hope that what they do is they consider how these existing things they're exploring with the communities are shaping how those communities work, how that how those could um, drive or infuse a security event. Well, I made a few comments to that effect, and they liked that so much that they brought me on to help lead the security events. And so Courtney Nash, who was the person who I worked with originally on the concept, the idea that this was about building, this was about engineering defenses and providing defenders with the tools and capabilities they needed. That was the spirit in which we pursued this. And I was so happy with how the events turned out. And I think that we were able to bring folks in. One of the things that we talked about is how folks who are tasked with defending systems and organizations today, they don't necessarily self-identify as IT security folks, Mm -hmm. right? You have folks who are looking at problems with privacy, They're looking at problems of compliance. They are the ones who are building the software, not just the ones who are auditing the software. All of these folks have to kind of be empowered with the right information and and the right incentives to build better systems. 
the more defensible systems and, you know, systems with less inherent vulnerabilities. And so the events themselves went really well. I think that we were able to infuse the conference with this sort of excitement, the creativity, collaboration, the idea of sharing how to do things better, which it felt to me sometimes that a lot of the shows and conferences in the space had been really more focused on the narrative of the breaker as the idea that you have to know how an attacker thinks in order to defend against them. I don't disagree with that, but I also think defenders may also have things they need to do uh, in addition to living with a breaker over their shoulder kind of mentality. So the, the idea that resilient systems are resilient systems and optimized systems and scaled systems. There's kind of an art to that and an emerging science around that in and of itself, in addition to the fact that there are attackers on the way always. It was really refreshing to be able to have conversations with folks who are thinking about doing things differently and always with that build mindset as opposed to the constant kind of the idea of the defender as the ultimate reactionary. Right. So I was really excited to have been a part of that. And I think that it's, it's, it's changed the industry a little bit. I see a lot more events sort of trying to hone in on this is by defenders for defenders or make sure that there are SDLC tracks or more outreach, if you will, to developers. I think it's fantastic. And I'm so excited to have been a part of it. Yeah, no, I fully agree. And I like that the, the, the journey you're describing uh, with O'Reilly and you know, kind of maybe the whole ecosystem is is actually somewhat similar to your own journey, right? Kind of going from understanding software to appreciating risk to using data to combat that risk and then to bring all of that back into into technology solutions, right? Yeah. And into the technology practitioners that, that do it. So I'm a fan both of the approach and of, you know, sort of variety security, which I try to help out a bit as well and, and kind of hope that that sort of vibe of events that orient at defenders and at using data and at using kind of technology to, uh, to kind of help us, uh, help us build things that are more, uh, more indeed resilient to attacks as well, not just sort of to downtime, but within those same communities. So I appreciate the effort there. Uh, and I, I appreciate you sort of sharing the journey. I guess I'll leave you just like one quick question on a pet peeve or, you know, I like to ask every every guest, you know, if you had like one quick word of advice or pet peeve on security that you wish people would do or stop doing on it, what would that be? If we're talking everyday average folks, um, <laughs> I like password managers. So, you know, I'll I'll just kind of say that. I know they're not perfect, but I actually do really like password managers for multiple reasons. But I think you're really asking more that question on behalf of the technologist. And I guess I would say, I'm not sure if if there's a nice DevOps equivalent that there's already a saying for, but I will say that your design's not done if you've only considered the happy path. And so what I mean is that people are on average good and design assuming good intentions, but uh, always make sure that you look out for the outlier abuse cases and failure cases and instrument them and make sure that there's a path for them as well. Very, very valid advice. So, Sally, thanks a lot for your time uh, uh, joining us today. Thanks. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Join us for the next one. That's all we have time for today. 
If you'd like to come on as a guest on this show or want us to cover a specific topic, find us on Twitter at The Secure Dev. To learn more about Heavybeat, browse to heavybeat.com. You can find this podcast and many other great ones, as well as over 100 videos about building developer tooling companies given by top experts in the field. 